We've been studying this summer uh, our look at the doctrine of sin, and we have been using as our window into the doctrine of sin uh, this whole discussion of the seven deadly sins. We opened up by looking at this deadly sin of lust. Uh, Last week we looked at the deadly sin of greed. This week we turn our attention to, in many ways, the foundational sin of all the sins, at least if people like C.S. Lewis uh, are uh, correct. And that is the deadly sin of pride. Uh, Pride, in many ways, is foundational to all the other uh, seven deadly sins and can be kind of contained in all of them. Uh, Here's C.S. Lewis's nice short uh, definition of it. Uh, He says this, he says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more than the next man. Uh, It is the comparison that makes you proud and the pleasure of being above the rest. But once the element of competition has gone, then pride has gone. So I want to use that as our introduction. For those of you who have ever read C.S. Lewis's classic work, uh, Mere Christianity, there's a huge section on pride, from which I'm drawing a lot of my comments. I'll also remind you that I've been very indebted to my good buddy Tom Cannon, who uh, did this series a few years ago and was nice enough to provide me uh, with some much-needed research material. So, uh, thanks, Tom. Um, Okay, so tonight what I want to look at, first of all, is the definition of pride. I want to look at the trouble with pride and then uh, the healing uh, of our pride as we start to sort of look through this. Uh, look, in the list of uh, seven deadly sins, pride uh, is, the, is the one that comes from the Latin word uh, superbia. Uh, <laughs> not disturbia, uh, but superbia. That's, your, uh, that's your, your relevant moment right there. Your campus minister wants to sort of build bridges with the music of the young people. Uh, okay, you know, that couldn't have been any worse. Uh, <laughs> trying to imagine anything more awkward than that, but it didn't really work out. Anyway, superbia. And again, of course, you hear that word and you think, well, you know, that doesn't sound too bad. Uh, In fact, you know, we use the word pride oftentimes uh, in very positive ways. Someone will talk about uh, taking pride in your work, or we talk about um, uh, pride in your country or in your particular affiliation. Uh, Sometimes people talk about the issue of pride in connection with their own self-esteem. You know, have some pride for heaven's sakes. But the kind of pride that we have in view here uh, has certain characteristics that clearly identify it uh, as uh, something bad, uh, as a bad thing. And for our purposes, I want you to lock in on the definition of pride as being this. Pride is nothing more than self-absorption. Self-absorption. Some of you might remember from Greek mythology the character of uh, Narcissus. Narcissus. Uh, Narcissus was the one who was punished for his vanity and for his pride because he fell in love with his own image uh, and his own reflection. And at one point he began to stare so intently at his reflection in the water that he fell in and drowned. Uh, and my favorite comment on this comes from uh, W.H. Auden, who uh, is you know, not the most chipper of, of uh, 20th century poets and 
uh, uh, writers. But Auden, in his classic way, says this. He says, Narcissus does not fall in love with his reflection because it's beautiful, but he falls in love with his reflection because it is his. Uh, in other words, if it were his beauty that enthralled him, he would have been set free by a few years from its fading. <laughs> in other words, beauty often fails, but that's not what Narcissus fell in love with. What he fell in love with was the fact that it was his beauty, that it's coming from him. Uh, for those of you that are a little more philosophically minded, you might be aware of the philosophical uh, um, uh, idea of solipsism. Anybody ever heard of a uh, solipsism. This is a really radical philosophical idea that basically says that my mind and my perceptions are really the only things that really exist, right? Uh, uh, solipsism is that variety of idealism uh, that maintains that the individual self, things inside my own mind, is the only thing that's actually real. Anything in the external world is an illusion. You're an illusion. Uh, uh, perception of you is an illusion. It really is nothing more. The world is nothing more than your mind reaching out and creating something in your life. I heard one friend of mine say it this way. He said, I am the only being in the universe, and you only exist in my mind. <laughs> That's the solipsist. There's a, a solipsistic a philosopher who works uh, at Duke, and this sort of provided the foundation of an old joke where someone was supposed to go pick him up from the airport. And uh, the guy looked at the guy who was supposed to pick him up and said, uh, be very careful when you're bringing Professor so-and-so back, uh, because if he goes, we all go. Um, philosophy jokes are never very funny, to be quite <laughs> frank with you, much like everything that I've said tonight, uh, but uh, that's quite all right. Um, <clears throat> there was a guy that Tom Cannon had hunted down on the internet by the name of Paco uh, Underhill who actually published um, uh, an, so, sort of a, an urban uh, um, commentary, a guy who sort of notices trends on the internet and in sort of American pop culture, who was talking about uh, American, specifically Western shoppers and the way in which we uh, sort of appeal to him. Uh, and he was quoted as saying this. He says, look, if you own a store, you never want to be next door to a bank uh, because potential shoppers always speed up when they walk past a bank, mostly because at a bank they know there's nothing that they're going to be able to look at. Isn't that interesting? And by the time that they slow down, they've walked right past your business. It's kind of advice that this guy doles out. He says, but stand and watch what happens whenever you put on the front of your store some kind of reflective surface. <laughs> he looks and says this. He goes, we end up preening like chimps. Men and women alike, mirrors slow shoppers in their tracks. A very good idea for whatever merchandise happens to be in the vicinity. We are in love with our own images. It's hard to stop. He goes on to talk about a, um, uh, to quote from a guy at Stanford Law School, uh, 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 what's his, uh, Lawrence Lessig who talks about architecture and how we, how we build around appealing to the self. And when he's talking to, um, he was given an example of a hotel who was having these, um, uh, 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 what would you call a person that stays in a hotel? These, not a tenant, a tenant, uh, staying in a hotel because they were complaining about how slow the elevators were. And so what the hotel did was they installed mirrors all around where the uh, elevators were. 
The complaints stopped <laughs> as soon as they installed the mirrors. Why? While you're waiting on that elevator to arrive for, you've got plenty of time to take in all of your various and sundries. Look, the definition of pride is getting at this idea that the world is reflected and mirrored and functions on the basis of my impressions, my reactions, my desires, my will for my future, everything centers around me. It's all about me, pride looks and says. Pride convinces the person. Okay, so what's the trouble with that? For some of you, you're looking and saying, uh, yeah, Les, that's right. I was always taught that look out for number one. That's what we're wired to. Isn't that in some ways a definition of psychological health? Well, the answer to that is actually not. Um, the sinful soul, the Bible will teach, uh, and again, I guess I should go ahead and read the Obadiah passage here. Uh, there's only one chapter in Obadiah, which is nice. You only have to give the verses. Uh, verses uh, 1 through 4 uh, say this. The first thing out of Obadiah's prophecy comes out like this. It begins the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling. Who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Uh, the Bible teaches, and I could have chosen 15 passages for, our, <laughs> for the topic, but again, I just wanted to be able to say that we had a lesson from Obadiah tonight. Tell your friends that, that we went to RUF and had a lesson from Obadiah. Again, nowhere near as funny as it was in my mind, but uh, that seems to be the pattern for tonight's crowd. Are we tired? Are we hot? Help out with this if we can. <laughs> C.S. Lewis describes pride as being the foundational sin that is marked out by the unsmiling concentration of the self. Self-absorption, being looked, looking at yourself, is in many ways the seedbed of every other sin. It's the fundamental lie that I don't need God's intervention in my life. That's what pride is. In many ways, that harkens back to the original sin. Adam and Eve in the garden, the first of our human ancestry, are tempted with this idea that you can live a life independently of God, that He can function, as it were, as a spoke on your wheel, or perhaps even just a distant, absent grandfather into your life. That is the essence of pride. The serpent comes to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, and says, you're not going to die. <laughs> when you eat of the fruit, God knows that you're going to be like Him. Make decisions for yourself. By the way, I think that's the root of the tree that's in the center of the garden that they were told not to eat. The, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? The idea simply being, taking of the tree was a way of saying, I can decide for myself what is right and what is wrong how my life should look like, what it ought to be built on. In other words, the serpent tempts Adam and Eve that you will be like God. You'll be self-sufficient. You'll be independent and in need of no one. And so pride, therefore, is, is, 
is fundamentally a violation and a disorder of what God called you to be, a disordering of the way in which you were created. Now, I recognize that for a lot of people who tend to be, how can I put this, on the, on the sidelines of Christianity, and for those of you that come to RUF on a regular basis, you know that I want you here. RUF is trying very much to answer the questions of people on the Old Miss campus who are skeptics. And for a lot of people who hear people say things like what I just said about saying pride is being able to live without God, they'd look to themselves and they would say, I'm sorry, but I'm doing quite fine without God, thank you very much. And I recognize that. But I'm simply trying to give you a definition of the Christian view of life, which basically says you were given a manufacturer's design. Like any other piece of of, of, uh, sophisticated uh, workmanship, you are created to function in dependence upon the person who is your creator. And anything that I do outside of that dependence, again, according to the Christian vision of life, simply lends itself to your dysfunction. And so the Bible comes and tries to interpret the things with which you struggle as being fundamentally a problem of, you guessed it, pride. Independence. I can function on myself. C.S. Lewis calls it the complete anti-God state of mind is pride. So the problem with this is, is it begins to create, once we are self-absorbed, it breaks down what we were created to be as human beings. In order to illustrate this, I have to pull back into (laughs) my own pop culture history, which is very dangerous because from the 1980s, none of you were born, uh, or at least very few of you were born, and so none of you have any sensibility to this. But I remember distinctly, because I love the movie so much, this makes a great sort of... um, rental. Uh, uh, The very first of the runaway computer movies, but this one actually happened to be a romantic comedy uh, with some of these old uh, Ali Sheedy and um, uh, uh, I think Judge Reinhold was in it or somebody like that. Anyway, I don't know who it was. People that none of you have ever heard of uh, like that. But the movie was called Short Circuit. If somebody in this room has seen Short Circuit, I will drop my teeth. Have you seen it? Great Caesar's ghost. My heart is warmed over on the inside. Okay, let me tell you how this thing starts. There's this little um, robot, okay, who is known by nothing other than the number of robot that he is. He's number five. Number five, yay. Um, And at one point, because he's learning so much, number five takes on sort of a a sense of self-consciousness and he kind of becomes human-like. But, of course, he's a computer. And he only has one real process, right, which is what? Input. And he goes around the whole movie, really just a set of beady eyes sort of rolling around in this terrible 1980s you know, version of a computer that would come to life. And all he walks around saying is, input, input, need input. It's his only function in life, right? It's the only thing that he craves. Um, and that's how he functions. Pride works in exactly the same way. Pride basically wires you from the inside out to say, Input, input. I need recognition. Uh, I need thanks from people. I need compliments from people. I need affirmation from people. It makes you want, it gives you one frame of mind, which in the end turns you into someone 
that doesn't function the way in which God wants you to. It breaks down your ability to have relationships with each other in two ways. Number one, pride makes you a relational consumer. I, I'm trying to introduce this phrase because I find myself using it so much that I need to kind of uh, sort of publish it abroad. Do you know what I mean when, when, when you meet someone and you spend some time with them and in leaving them, you begin to realize that your relationship with them had nothing to do with you. You were there to be acted upon and not given to. You follow me? In other words, you feel exhausted when that other person leaves your presence. They're constantly needing from you. They're taking from you, whether it be attention, whether it be the need for compliments, whatever, they are draining you. We talk this way, don't we? After hanging out with that person, quite frankly, I'm just totally drained. You want to know why? Because pride makes you a relational consumer. Input, input. <laughs> need affirmation. Need you to hear my problems and tell me I'm okay. Need you to, you know, uh, 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 bear the weight of my own psychological and spiritual burdens. We load people up in that sense. Um, I found it interesting that even in our dating relationships, we set up our very marriages in this way. You know, we talk about the people that are like, you know, I'm just looking for someone that can meet my expectations and my needs as a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And we say that without blushing, <laughs> that when it comes to my future dating or marriage relationship, I'm looking for someone who can meet my needs. We speak about it so, so casually in that sense. The Bible looks and says that's pride. And because it's pride, you're, you're devouring the other person, not building them up. And guess what? Human societies, at least from the Christian perspective of life, is described as one in which we are building the other person up, where I'm concerned for their well-being and their good. Um, look, do people walk away after interactions with you feeling better about themselves and the world in which they live? Or do they feel like they've just had the life sucked out of them? I think that's a fair question that you could ask of the people with whom you have the most trusted relationships? Are there people in my life who feel nourished psychologically, emotionally, socially by their interaction with me? Or am I sucking the life out of all of them? Because at the root of that is a problem with pride and it gets at everything. So that's the first thing. You become a relational consumer. Let's get that conversation going. Number two, it also makes you condescending. Pride will always make you condescending. In other words, all of your relationships are a looking down. Um, you know, much of your time that you spend whenever you walk into a new room with a lot of people are spent kind of sizing people up, wondering about your particular status in the midst of this group and feeling incredibly self-conscious about the fact, Right? Um, for me, this is, the, uh, this is the torment of the high school lunchroom. You remember this moment? And I know this wasn't just me, right? Where you would go in through the cafeteria and you get your tray or whatever it is you've got that day, and you kind of walk in out of the thing and you take that quick scan of the room and you're like, where can I sit, where can I sit, where can I sit, where can I sit? Are there people that I know? Where are my friends? Do my friends have seats? Am I going to be left by alone? And I'm going to sit with those people. 
constantly interacting with the room and asking yourself, where do I fit in? Y'all, that is fundamentally a problem with pride because it means you're always looking for the one up. Do I measure up? Do I, do I match that person? Am I up with that person? It means that to some significant portion of your life, your own interaction with them is just in looking down. Condescension. We're so self-absorbed that oftentimes we never even think about the fact that it's nothing more than pride. It is an innate defensive posture towards the world where you look at the world as if it's an enemy uh, in the process. Finally and thirdly, pride ends up making you cowardly. Look, there's, a, there's an irony about pride because there's a form of pride that looks and says, you know what, I'm so awful and so bad and I don't fit in with anybody that I'm just totally down on myself. I don't deserve anything in life and therefore I don't enjoy anything in life. It obsesses with your lowliness, right? And resents very deeply the fact that you feel like less of a person or that you feel like you don't measure up with that crowd, that in crowd. And suddenly you begin to develop a very psychology of cowardliness that keeps you from extending yourself into the world and makes you someone that never actually challenges yourself, never tries new things. We look and we say, I want to merit God's favor towards me. And so therefore all of our life is is, uh, an attempt to do that. But knowing that you can't, you're miserable and have no joy in the things that God gave to you to enjoy. Self-absorption, pride, does everything that it can to lock you in a prison of your own isolation. Now look, y'all, I'm not trying to play armchair psychiatrist here or anything, but I want you to see how compelling that is. Because again, the Bible is addressing this as if it's a root sin at the root of all of your others. Is it possible that that's what that little lingering voice inside the late hours of the night could be? is that we have, like our passage just said, exalted ourselves, that we are deceiving ourselves with our pride, who are living in the clefts of the rock in our lofty dwellings of our own self-sufficiency. Is it possible? Okay, so that brings us to the last question, and that is, okay, all right, Les, I get it. Now I'm all self-conscious about (laughs) whether I'm a relational consumer or not. How do you get over pride? How do you get over self-absorption? Um, step number one is to begin to identify it. You have to learn to call that thing what it is. And the best way I think you can do that is by looking at your responses to three things. Criticism, advice, and thanks. Think about this for just a second. Number one, how do you respond to criticism? When you're a humble person, criticism comes to you and you're neither indifferent to it but nor are you devastated by it. The prideful person, because they're so self-absorbed, whenever somebody comes and looks and says, you know, I love you enough to kind of challenge you in this particular area of your life. On the one hand, they're super defensive. (laughs) Who are you? I I don't do that. You're the one that does that. that. That's not me. Why don't you get the log out of your own eye before you start dealing with the speck in mine, blah, 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 right? Or on the other hand, they're so self-absorbed that the second that you mention the slightest thing, it's like you've been walking on eggshells around them. They immediately crumble. I don't know if you don't have any care for that. And suddenly they fall to pieces. You see that? That's pride that creates an inability 
to not receive criticism because we always need input. We're either indifferent to criticism or we'll take pride and reject it. In other words, we're not teachable, right? In your pride, we don't like to listen to other people. Other people are oftentimes just devastated by it. Both reactions, I find profoundly, come from a heart of pride. Okay, criticism. Secondly, how do you react to advice? When someone comes up to you and offers you a piece of advice, on the one hand, are you totally inflexible? Uh, yeah, thanks. I appreciate that, but I've got this under control. That's pride. Or on the other hand, are you completely and totally flexible? Do you think I should do that? Is that what I should do? Yeah, I'll try that too. You see, your reaction to other people's advice will tell you whether you've got pride or not. In other words, if you're someone who needs advice all the time before you ever make a move, you need to have everybody think that you're okay, then you're not humble. You don't possess the bravery that, only, that, that God promises His people should have. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Why Revival Fails. And in it he says that one of the marks of spiritual pride is a Christian who is absolutely sure of every article of his or her belief. I say that simply because you know, most of you have recognized that in RUF we tend to, we talk very freely about theology in the Bible. And it's very easy in our circles to somehow come off as if every single article of belief we've got completely and utterly down pat. And the truth is that that can become a matter of spiritual pride where you can begin to condescend to others because I'm a little more theologically accurate than thou. Your reaction to advice will reveal whether or not you've got a pride problem. Thirdly, how do you deal with thanks? This, this was profound. Somebody else was talking about this. That's why I thought this was fascinating. If somebody wants to give you a compliment, have you ever noticed that sometimes when they give you a compliment, you just can't stand it? You ever known this person? You walk up to you and you want to go, look, I cannot tell you how much you meant to me a while back. You are so gracious to have helped me. Have you ever noticed people that are like, oh, oh mm, no, stop it, stop it, stop it. And for some reason just can't let you send them a compliment? It's just kind of like it's constantly blowing off of them. You're just kind of wanting to go, no, no, no. I, I really just wanted to like be kind to you. Ah, da, da, da. No, no. You ever wondered why people do that? I have a suspicion. I know why I do it. The reason why I try to slough off a, a thanks from people is because I really don't want you to know just how desperately I need that praise. We slough off on thanks from people. We don't know how to graciously accept thanks from people because deep inside we're terrified of them knowing and finding out just how much I desperately want that praise. You know what that is? It's pride. It's pride at its heart. Look, the Bible holds something out to you, and I'll finish with this thought here, that the Bible holds out a vision of your humanity. Follow me on this one that holds both humility and confidence equally together. Two attributes which seem um, contradictory. How can I be humble and still confident? Because if I'm humble and don't think of myself you know, as high, then suddenly I realize that I might not have any confidence. But if I'm too confident, suddenly I'm not being humble. But see, here's the problem. That's not the definition of humility. In the Bible's definition of humility, and this is C.S. Lewis again, you know, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. <laughs> Somewhere in the message at the heart of Jesus' gospel 
is this idea that I can free you from having to be tormented by your own self-judgment and from the need to constantly hear back from others, input, input. Look, y'all, at the very end of human history, in the book of Revelation, we find out that uh, there's a... um, Uh, There's a vision that John sees in chapter 5. An angel swoops down to John and says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In other words, he's looking and goes, John, look, look at the lion. And when John looks at the lion, do you remember what he sees? He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb with its throat cut, by the way. Interesting image, is it not? Because he says, look to the lion, and he saw a lamb. In the person and work of Jesus, you have both lion, the confident statement of God's absolute purpose of law in the universe, but you also have the lamb, the merciful, gracious one who receives the punishment himself in order to make a way for his people to have access to God. When you meet Jesus, you're capable, follow me here, of lion lambness and of lamb-like lioness. I know those are not words. I'm aware of that. (laughs) In other words, you're someone who can actually look and be confident while still being humble. And you can still be humble while still being confident. Why? Because in the gospel, you have the gift of God of saying, look, you know what you are in my definition? You are an absolute beloved (laughs) screw-up. This is the definition of the gospel's new self-image that it brings to you. You are an adored screw mess. <laughs> and both of those things are true at the same time. Martin Luther, speaking of Reformed theology, the great reformer, was the first one who said, look, a Christian is one who is simultaneously just and sinful. And both of those things are true at the same time. In other words, you're a combination of both. You're one who looks and says, my sin is more wretched and awful and depraved than it could possibly imagine. But you know what? I'm more loved and accepted and forgiven in Jesus than I could ever dare dream. And because both of those things are true at the same time, I suddenly have the antidote for eroding my pride. We begin to deal with our pride when we suddenly start to take ourselves, take seriously what the Bible says about our sin. And then we begin to erode our pride when we take seriously what the Bible says about Jesus' willingness to forgive. And you know what happens after that? is God begins to create people who finally know how to relate to each other. It's my favorite Thomas Merton quote ever. He says, pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. I love that. In other words, it turns you into a person who is real, who actually relates to people with honesty and with genuineness and with sincerity. Uh, There's a beauty to that. And I'll bet you $5 that the people that you appreciate the most in your life now are the ones who hold those two things together. So that's our discussion on the topic of pride.